too, wields a power more decisive far than syllogisms in argument or courts of last appeal in authority, too, her love, mother, ecstatic sounds so twined round our hearts that they must cease to throb ere we forget it, tis our first love, tis part of religion, nature has set the mother upon such a pinnacle that our infant eyes and arms are first uplifted to it, we cling to it in manhood, we almost worship it in old age, 3, her tenderness, alas, how little do we appreciate a mother's tenderness while living, how heedless are we in youth of all her anxieties and kindness, but when she is dead and gone, when the cares and coldness of the world come withering to our hearts, when we experience for ourselves how hard it is to find true sympathy, how few to love us, how few will befriend us in misfortune, then it is that we think of the mother we have lost, for, her controlling power, the mother can take man's whole nature under her control, she becomes what she has been called, the divinity of infancy, her smile is its sunshine, her word its mildest law, until sin and the world have steeled the heart, 5, the last tie, the young man who has forsaken the advice and influence of his mother has broken the last cable and severed the last tie that binds him to an honorable and upright life, he has forsaken his best friend, and every hope for his future welfare may be abandoned, for he is lost forever, if he is faithless to mother, he will have but little respect for wife and children, 6, home ties, the young man or young woman who love their home and love their mother can be safely trusted under almost any and all circumstances, and their life will not be a blank, for they seek what is good, their hearts will be ennobled, and God will bless them, home power, the mill streams that turn the clappers of the world arise in solitary places, helps, Lord, with what care hast thou begird us round, parents first season us, then schoolmasters deliver us to laws, they send us bound to rules of reason. George Herbert. 1. School of Character. Home is the first and most important school of character. It is there that every human being receives his best moral training, or his worst. For it is there that he imbibes those principles of conduct which endure through manhood, and cease only with life. 2. Home makes the man. It is a common saying. Manners make the man, and there is a second. That, mine makes the man but truer than either is a third, that, home makes the man, for the home training includes not only manners and mind, but character, it is mainly in the home that the heart is opened, the habits are formed, the intellect is awakened, and character molded for good or for evil, 3, govern society, from that source, be it pure or impure, issue the principles and maxims that govern society, law itself is but the reflex of homes, the tiniest bits of opinion sown in the minds of children in private life afterwards issue forth to the world, and become its public opinion, for nations are gathered out of nurseries, and they who hold the leading strings of children may even exercise a greater power than those who wield the reins of government. For, the child is father of the man, the child's character is the nucleus of the man's, all after education is but superposition, the form of the crystal remains the same. Thus the saying of the poet holds true in a large degree. The child is father of the man, or as Milton puts it, the childhood shows the man, as morning shows the day. Those impulses to conduct which last the longest and are rooted the deepest, always have their origin near our birth. It is then that the germs of virtues or vices, of feelings or sentiments, are first implanted which determine the character of life. 5. Nurseries. Thus homes which are nurseries of children who grow up into men and women, 
will be good or bad according to the power that governs them. Where the spirit of love and duty pervades the home, where head and heart bear rule wisely there, where the daily life is honest and virtuous, where the government is sensible, kind, and loving, then may we expect from such a home an issue of healthy, useful, and happy beings, capable as they gain the requisite strength, of following the footsteps of their parents, of walking uprightly, governing themselves wisely, and contributing to the welfare of those about them. 6. Ignorance, coarseness, and selfishness. On the other hand, if surrounded by ignorance, coarseness, and selfishness, they will unconsciously assume the same character, and grow up to adult years rude, and cultivated, and all the more dangerous to society if placed amidst the manifold temptations of what is called civilized life. Give your child to be educated by a slave, said an ancient Greek, and, instead of one slave, you will then have two. 7. Maternal love. Maternal love is the visible providence of our race. Its influence is constant and universal. It begins with the education of the human being at the outstart of life, and is prolonged by virtue of the powerful influence which every good mother exercises over her children through life. When launched into the world, each to take part in its labors, anxieties, and trials, they still turn to their mother for consolation, if not for counsel. In their time of trouble and difficulty, the pure and good thoughts she has implanted in their minds when children continue to grow up into good acts long after she is dead, and when there is nothing but a memory of her left, her children rise up and call her blessed. 8. Woman, above all other educators, educates humanly. Man is the brain, but woman is the heart of humanity, he its judgment, she its feeling, he its strength, she its grace, ornament and solace. Even the understanding of the best woman seems to work mainly through her affections, and thus, though man may direct the intellect, woman cultivates the feelings, which mainly determine the character, while he fills the memory, she occupies the heart, she makes us love what we can make us only believe, and it is chiefly through her that we are enabled to arrive at virtue. 9. The poorest dwelling, presided over by a virtuous, thrifty, cheerful, and cleanly woman may thus be the abode of comfort, virtue and happiness, it may be the scene of every ennobling relation in family life, it may be endeared to man by many delightful associations, furnishing a sanctuary for the heart, a refuge from the storms of life, a sweet resting place after labor, a consolation in misfortune, a pride in prosperity and a joy at all times. 10. The good home is thus the best of schools, not only in youth but in age. Their young and old best learn cheerfulness, patience, self-control, and the spirit of service and of duty. The home is the true school of courtesy, of which woman is always the best practical instructor. Without woman, says the Provencal proverb, men were but ill-licked cubs. Philanthropy radiates from the home as from a center. To love the little platoon we belong to in society, said Burke, is the germ of all public affections. The wisest and best have not been ashamed to own it to be their greatest joy and happiness to sit behind the heads of children in the inviolable circle of home. To young women. 1. To be a woman. In the truest and highest sense of the word is to be the best thing beneath the skies. To be a woman is something more than to live 18 or 20 years, something more than to grow to the physical stature of women, something more than to wear flounces, exhibit dry goods, sport jewelry, catch the gaze of lewd-eyed men something more than to be a bell, a wife, or a mother, put all these qualifications together and they do but little toward making a true woman, 
too. Beauty and style are not the surest passports to womanhood. Some of the noblest specimens of womanhood that the world has ever seen have presented the plainest and most unprepossessing appearance. A woman's worth is to be estimated by the real goodness of her heart, the greatness of her soul, and the purity and sweetness of her character, and a woman with a kindly disposition and well-balanced temper is both lovely and attractive. Be her face ever so plain, and her figure ever so homely, she makes the best of wives and the truest of mothers. 3. Beauty is a dangerous gift. It is even so. Like wealth, it has ruined its thousands. Thousands of the most beautiful women are destitute of common sense and common humanity. No gift from heaven is so general and so widely abused by women as the gift of beauty. In about nine cases in ten it makes her silly, senseless, thoughtless, giddy, vain, proud, frivolous, selfish, low and mean. I think I have seen more girls spoiled by beauty than by any other one thing. She is beautiful, and she knows it, is as much as to say that she is spoiled. A beautiful girl is very likely to believe she was made to be looked at, and so she sets herself up for a show at every window, in every door, on every corner of the street, in every company at which opportunity offers for an exhibition of herself. 4. Beware of beautiful women. These facts have long since taught sensible men to beware of beautiful women to sound them carefully before they give them their confidence. Beauty is shallow only skin deep, fleeting only for a few years reign, dangerous tempting to vanity and lightness of mind, deceitful dazzling of ten to bewilder, weak reigning only to ruin, gross leading often to sensual pleasure. And yet we say it need not be so. Beauty is lovely and ought to be innocently possessed. It has charms which ought to be used for good purposes. It is a delightful gift, which ought to be received with gratitude and worn with grace and meekness. It should always minister to inward beauty. Every woman of beautiful form and features should cultivate a beautiful mind and heart. 5. Rival the boys. We want the girls to rival the boys in all that is good, and refined, and ennobling. We want them to rival the boys, as they well can, in learning, in understanding, in virtues, in all noble qualities of mind and heart but not in any of those things that have caused them, justly or unjustly, to be described as savages. We want the girls to be gentle not weak, but gentle, and kind and affectionate. We want to be sure, that wherever a girl island there should be a sweet, subduing and harmonizing influence of purity, and truth, and love, pervading and hallowing, from center to circumference, the entire circle in which she moves. If the boys are savages, we want her to be their civilizer. We want her to tame them, to subdue their ferocity, to soften their manners, and to teach them all needful lessons of order, sobriety, and meekness, and patience and goodness. 6. Kindness. Kindness is the ornament of man. It is the chief glory of woman at island indeed. Woman's true prerogative her scepter and her crown. It is the sword with which she conquers, and the charm with which she captivates. 7. Admired and beloved. Young lady, would you be admired and beloved? Would you be an ornament to your sex, and a blessing to your race? Cultivate this heavenly virtue. Wealth may surround you with its blandishments, and beauty, and learning, or talents, may give you admirers. But love and kindness alone can captivate the heart. Whether you live in a cottage or a palace, these graces can surround you with perpetual sunshine, making you, and all around you, happy. 8. Inward Grace. Seek ye then, fair daughters, the possession of that inward grace, whose essence shall permeate and vitalize the affections, 
adorn the countenance make mellifluous the voice, and impart a hallowed beauty even to your motions, not merely that you may be loved, would I urge this, but that you may, in truth, be lovely that loveliness which fades not with time, nor is marred or alienated by disease, but which neither chance nor change can in any way despoil. 9. Silken Enticements of the Stranger. We urge you, gentle maiden, to beware of the silken enticements of the stranger, until your love is confirmed by protracted acquaintance. Shun the idler, though his coffers overflow with pelf. Avoid the irreverent the scoffer of hallowed things, and him who looks upon the wine while it is red, him too, who hath a high look and a proud heart, and who privily slandereth his neighbor. Do not heed the specious prattle about first love, and so place, irrevocably, the seal upon your future destiny, before you have sounded, in silence and secrecy, the deep fountains of your own heart. Wait, rather, until your own character and that of him who would woo you, is more fully developed. Surely, if this first love cannot endure a short probation, fortified by the pleasures of hope, how can it be expected to survive years of intimacy, scenes of trial, distracting cares, wasting sickness, and all the homely routine of practical life? Yet it is these that constitute life, and the love that cannot abide them is false and must die. Influence of female character. 1. Moral effect. It is in its moral effect on the mind and the heart of man that the influence of woman is most powerful and important, in the diversity of tastes, habits, inclinations, and pursuits of the two sexes, is found a most beneficent provision for controlling the force and extravagance of human passion, the objects which most strongly seize and stimulate the mind of man, rarely act at the same time and with equal power on the mind of woman, she is naturally better, purer, and more chaste in thought and language, to, female character, but the influence of female character on the virtue of men, is not seen merely in restraining and softening the violence of human passion, to her is mainly committed the task of pouring into the opening mind of infancy its first impressions of duty, and of stamping on its susceptible heart the first image of its God, who will not confess the influence of a mother reinforming the heart of a child, what man is there who cannot trace the origin of many of the best maxims of his life to the lips of her who gave him birth, how wide, how lasting, how sacred is that part of a woman's influence. 3. Virtue of a community. There is yet another mode by which woman may exert a powerful influence on the virtue of a community. It rests with her in a preeminent degree, to give tone and elevation to the moral character of the age, by deciding the degree of virtue that shall be necessary to afford a passport to her society. If all the favor of woman were given only to the good, if it were known that the charms and attractions of beauty and wisdom, and wit, were reserved only for the pure, if, in one word, something of a similar rigor were exerted to exclude the profligate and abandoned of society, as is shown to those, who have fallen from virtue, how much would be done to reinforce the motives to moral purity among us, and impress on the minds of all a reverence for the sanctity and obligations of virtue, for, the influence of woman on the moral sentiments, the influence of woman on the moral sentiments of society is intimately connected with her influence on its religious character, for religion and a pure and elevated morality must ever stand in the relation to each other of effect and cause. The heart of a woman is formed for the abode of sacred truth, and for the reasons alike honorable to her character and to that of society. From the nature of humanity this must be so, or the race would soon degenerate and moral contagion eat out the heart of society. 
The purity of home is the safeguard to American manhood, personal purity, self-reverence, self-knowledge, self-control. These three alone lead life to sovereign power. Tennyson 1. Words of the Great Teacher. Mark the words of the Great Teacher, if thy right hand or foot cause thee to fall, cut it off and cast it from thee. If thy right eye cause thee to fall, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into a life maimed and halt, than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the word dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. 2. A melancholy fact. It is a melancholy fact in human experience, that the noblest gifts which men possess are constantly prostituted to other purposes than those for which they are designed. The most valuable and useful organs of the body are those which are capable of the greatest dishonor, abuse, and corruption. What a snare the wonderful organism of the eye may become, when used to read corrupt books, or to look upon licentious pictures, or vulgar theater scenes, or when used to meet the fascinating gaze of the harlot. What an instrument for depraving the whole man may be found in the matchless powers of the brain, the hand, the mouth, or the tongue. What potent instruments may these become in accomplishing the ruin of the whole being, for time and eternity? 3. Abstinence. Some can testify with thankfulness that they never knew the sins of gambling, drunkenness, fornication, or adultery. In all these cases abstinence has been, and continues to be, liberty. Restraint is the noblest freedom. No man can affirm that self-denial ever injured him. On the contrary, self-restraint has been liberty, strength and blessing. Solemnly ask young men to remember this when temptation and passion strive as a flood tide to move them from the anchorage and peace of self-restraint. Beware of the deceitful stream of temporary gratification, whose eddying current drifts towards license, shame, disease and death. Remember how quickly moral power declines, how rapidly the edge of the fatal maelstrom is reached, how near the vortex, how terrible the penalty, how fearful the sentence of everlasting punishment. For Frank discussion. The time has arrived for a full and frank discussion of those things which affect the personal purity. Thousands are suffering today from various weaknesses, the causes of which they have never learned. Manly vigor is not increasing with that rapidity which a Christian age demands. Means of dissipation are on the increase. It is high time, therefore, that every lover of the race should call a halt, and inquire into the condition of things. Excessive modesty on this subject is not virtue. Timidity in presenting and pleasant but important truths has permitted untold damage in every age. 5. Man is a careless being. He is very much inclined to sinful things. He more often does that which is wrong than that which is right, because it is easier, and, for the moment, perhaps, more satisfying to the flesh. The Creator is often blamed for man's weaknesses and inconsistencies. This is wrong. God did not intend that we should be mere machines, but free moral agents. We are privileged to choose between good and evil. Hence, if we perseveringly choose the latter, and make a miserable failure of life, we should blame only ourselves. 6. The pulpit. Would that every pulpit in the land might join hands with the medical profession and cry out with no uncertain sound against the mighty evils he stigmatized. It would work a revolution for which coming society could never cease to be grateful. 7. Strive to attain a higher life. Strive to attain unto a higher and better life. Beware of all excesses, of whatever nature, and guard your personal purity with sacred determination. Let every aspiration be upward, and be strong in every good resolution. Seek the light, for in light there is life.
while in darkness there is decay and death. How to write all kinds of letters? 1. From the president in his cabinet to the laborer in the street, from the lady in her parlor to the servant in her kitchen, from the millionaire to the beggar, from the emigrant to the settler, from every country and under every combination of circumstances. Letter writing in all its forms and varieties is most important to the advancement, welfare and happiness of the human family. 2. Education. The art of conveying thought through the medium of written language is so valuable and so necessary. A thorough knowledge of the practice must be desirable to everyone, for merely to write a good letter requires the exercise of much of the education and talent of any writer. 3. A good letter. A good letter must be correct in every mechanical detail, finished in style, interesting in substance, and intelligible in construction. Few there are who do not need write them, yet a letter perfect in detail is rarer than any other specimen of composition. 4. Penmanship. It is folly to suppose that the faculty for writing a good hand is confined to any particular persons. There is no one who can write at all, but what can write well, if only the necessary pains are practiced. Practice makes perfect. Secure a few copy books and write an hour each day. You will soon write a good hand. 5. Write plainly. Every word of even the most trifling document should be written in such clear characters that it would be impossible to mistake it for another word. Or the writer may find himself in the position of the Eastern merchant who, writing to the Indies for 5,000 mangoes, received by the next vessel 500 monkeys, with a promise of more in the next cargo. 6. Haste. Hurry is no excuse for bad writing, because anyone of sense knows that everything hurried is liable to be ruined. Dispatch may be acquired, but hurry will ruin everything. If, however, you must write slowly to write well, then be careful not to hurry at all, for the few moments you will gain by rapid writing will never compensate you for the disgrace of sending an ill-written letter. 7. Neatness. Neatness is also of great importance. A fair white sheet with handsomely written words will be more welcome to any reader than a blotted, bedog page covered with erasures and dirt, even if the matter in each be of equal value and interest. Erasures, blots, interlineations always spoil the beauty of any letter. 8. Bad spelling. When those who from faulty education, or forgetfulness are doubtful about the correct spelling of any word, it is best to keep a dictionary at hand, and refer to it upon such occasions. It is far better to spend a few moments in seeking for a doubtful word, than to dispatch an ill-spelled letter, and the search will probably impress the spelling upon the mind for a future occasion. 9. Carelessness. Incorrect spelling will expose the most important or interesting letter to the severest sarcasm and ridicule, however perfect in all other respects. No epistle that is badly spelled will be regarded as the work of an educated gentleman or lady. Carelessness will never be considered and to be ignorant of spelling is to expose an imperfect education at once. 10. An excellent practice. After writing a letter, read it over carefully, correct all the errors and rewrite it. If you desire to become a good letter writer, improve your penmanship, improve your language and grammar, rewriting once or twice every letter that you have occasion to write, whether on social or business subjects. 11. Punctuation. A good rule for punctuation is to punctuate where the sense requires it. After writing a letter and reading it over carefully you will see where the punctuation marks are required. You can readily determine where the sense requires it, so that your letter will convey the desired meaning. 12. Correspondence. 
There is no better school or better source for self-improvement than a pleasant correspondence between friends. It is not at all difficult to secure a good list of correspondence if desired. The young people who take advantage of such opportunities for self-improvement will be much more popular in the community and in society. Letter writing cultivates the habit of study, it cultivates the mind, the heart, and stimulates self-improvement in general. 13. Folding. Another bad practice with those unaccustomed to corresponding is to fold the sheet of writing in such a fantastic manner as to cause the receiver much annoyance in opening it. To the sender it may appear a very ingenious performance, but to the receiver it is only a source of vexation and annoyance, and may prevent the communication receiving the attention it would otherwise merit. 14. Simple style. The style of letter writing should be simple and ineffected not raised on stilts and indulging in pedantic displays which are mostly regarded as cloaks of ignorance. Repeated literary quotations, involved sentences, long-sounding words and scraps of Latin, French and other languages are, generally speaking, out of place, and should not be indulged in 15. The result, a well-written letter has opened the way to prosperity for many a one, has led to many a happy marriage and constant friendship and has secured many a good service in time of need, for it is in some measure a photograph of the writer, and may inspire love or hatred, regard or aversion in the reader, just as the glimpse of a portrait often determine us, in our estimate, of the worth of the person represented, therefore, one of the roads to fortune runs through the ink bottle, and if we want to attain a certain end in love, friendship or business, we must trace out the route correctly with the pen in our hand, how to write a love letter. 1. Love. There is no greater or more profound reality than love. Why that reality should be obscured by mere sentimentalism, with all its train of absurdities is incomprehensible. There is no nobler possession than the love of another. There is no higher gift from one human being to another than love. The gift and the possession are true sanctifiers of life, and should be worn as precious jewels, without affectation and without bashfulness. For this reason there is nothing to be ashamed of in a love letter, provided it be sincere. 2. Forfeits. No man need consider that he forfeits dignity if he speaks with his whole heart, no woman need fear she forfeits her womanly attributes if she responds as her heart bids her respond. Perfect love cast out fear is as true now as when the maxim was first given to the world. 3. Telling their love. The generality of the sex island love to be loved. How are they to know the fact that they are loved unless they are told? To write a sensible love letter requires more talent than to solve, with your pen, a profound problem in philosophy. Lovers must not then expect much from each other's epistles. 4. Confidential. Ladies and gentlemen who correspond with each other should never be guilty of exposing any of the contents of any letters written expressing confidence, attachment or love. The man who confides in a lady and honors her with his confidence should be treated with perfect security and respect, and those who delight in showing their confidential letters to others are unworthy, heartless and in safe companions. 5. Return of letters. If letters were written under circumstances which no longer exist and all confidential relations are at an end, then all letters should be promptly returned. 6. How to begin a love letter. How to begin a love letter has been no doubt the problem of lovers and suitors of all ages and nations. Fancy the youth of young America with lifted pen, thinking how he shall address his beloved. Much depends upon this letter. What shall he say? And how shall he say it? Is the great question. Perseverance. However, 
will solve the problem and determine results. 7. Forms of beginning a love letter. Never say, my dearest Nelly, my adored Nelly, or my darling Nelly, until Nelly has first called you, my dear, or has given you to understand that such familiar terms are permissible. As a rule a gentleman will never err if he says, dear Miss Nelly, and if the letters are cordially reciprocated the Miss may in time be omitted, or other familiar terms used instead. In addressing a widow, dear madam, or my dear madam, will be a proper form until sufficient intimacy will justify the use of other terms. 8. Respect. A lady must always be treated with respectful delicacy, and a gentleman should never use the term, dear, or, my dear, under any circumstances unless he knows it is perfectly acceptable or a long and friendly acquaintance justifies it. 9. How to finish a letter. A letter will be suggested by the remarks on how to begin one. Yours respectfully. Yours truly. Yours sincerely. Yours affectionately. Yours ever affectionately. Yours most affectionately. Ever yours. Ever your own. Or, yours. Are all appropriate. Each depending upon the beginning of the letter. It is difficult to see any phrase which could be added to them which would carry more meaning than they contain. People can sign themselves, adorers, and such like. But they do so at the peril of good taste. It is not good that men or women, worship, each other if they succeed in preserving reciprocal love and esteem they will have cause for great contentment. 10. Permission. No young man should ever write to a young lady any letter, formal or informal, unless he has first sought her permission to do so. 11. Special forms. We give various forms or models of love letters to be studied, not copied. We have given no replies to the forms given as every letter written will naturally suggest an answer. A careful study will be a great help to many who have not enjoyed the advantages of a literary education. Forms of social letters. 1. From a young lady to a clergyman asking a recommendation. Nantwick, May 18, 1915 Reverend and Dear Sir, having seen an advertisement for a schoolmistress in the Daily Times, I have been recommended to offer myself as a candidate. Will you kindly favor me with a testimonial as to my character, ability and conduct while at Boston Normal School? Should you consider that I am fitted for the position, you would confer a great favor on me if you would interest yourself in my behalf. I remain, Reverend Sir, your most obedient and humble servant, Laura B. Nichols. 2. Applying for a position as a teacher of music. Scotland. Con. January 21st, 1915 Madam. Seeing your advertisement in the clarion of today, I write to offer my services as a teacher of music in your family. I am a graduate of the Peabody Institute, of Baltimore, where I was thoroughly instructed in instrumental and vocal music. I refer by permission to Mrs. A.J. Davis, 1922 Walnut Street, Mrs. Franklin Hill, 2021 Spring Garden Street, and Mrs. William Murray, 1819 Spruce Street, in whose families I have given lessons hoping that you may see fit to employ me. I am, very respectfully yours, Nellie Reynolds. 3. Applying for a situation as a cook. Charlton Place, September 8, 1894. Madam, having seen your advertisement for a cook I, 